0: This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't
1: just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv
0: and wherever ebooks are sold.
1: Hi, I'm Christopher Rice.
0: And I'm Eric Shaw-Quinn.
1: And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Welcome back to another episode of our show and welcome to our first update, our second episode. Oh, you got your little earpiece back in there. I can see it happening on FaceTime. Falling apart. (laughs) i want to say i was about to say it's live radio but it's not anymore we don't do that anymore we record our podcast now we don't do them no live but we like really
0: we it's pretty much the same as live we just you get pretty much what brandon i'm sure cleans it up some and makes us sound less stupid and deadly. i was gonna
1: say he takes out the stupid <laughs> parts right he takes out the part where you ask me a question i should know the answer to and i'm like oh um this is our first official update our second episode devoted to an unsolved homicide that we have been looking into big week
0: yeah big week it has been we've had uh, some fairly substantial developments i think stick around for the whole show it is there is a lot um to talk about and yeah i really wow this is yeah this is yeah. quite the developments um,
1: uh, the first episode in which we covered the, the basic facts of this murder, as well as what is possibly a new eyewitness testimony to the victim's last movements, is episode 48. Uh, we're going to do our best to summarize what we talk about in that episode here as we move into what we have managed to obtain since then. Um, this is the case of William Arnold Newton, whose dismembered body parts, his head and feet, were found inside trash bags in a dumpster in Hollywood on October 29th, 1990. He was a fairly well-known gay porn star in the gay community who lived in Beverly Hills at the time. Uh, He was last seen alive at Rage Nightclub, which only recently closed, which was open for many years. It was a sort of mainstay in the neighborhood um billy's murder has gone unsolved for 30 years now we opened up an email address devoted for a devoted to tips uh recollections of people who might have known billy who might have known something they didn't know yeah it was william newton and it still is william newton investigation at gmail.com
0: when we put out A query, if you you will. We're still checking that email address. So yeah, this continues to progress because of that and for a lot of other reasons, but that has been an invaluable resource, not the least of which because of what happened when we first put it up. Exactly. And we were
1: pretty soon after putting the email address up, we were contacted by a gentleman named Ron Wheeler who gave us permission to use his name and specifically gave us permission to use his name because he thought if his name was also put out there, Other people who were present for what he believes he witnessed might also remember something and might also come forward. And the short version of Ron Wheeler's story, which we go into great detail about in episode 48, is that he believes that on the last night Billy was seen alive, he saw him leave Rage Nightclub in the presence of a man who, if he wasn't Jeffrey Dahmer, bore a striking resemblance to the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. And this became clear to Ron um, almost a year later when he saw Dahmer's arrest in 1991 on television, and he picked up the phone and called a national Dahmer hotline, which never contacted him, which we're not necessarily faulting the hotline for that. It was a huge case, and we know that anybody with an unsolved gay homicide at the time was probably trying to get in touch with the investigators on the Dahmer arrest. So we're not trying to lay blame there, but that was Ron's response in the moment until he saw our query about it and wrote in with his account. Okay. Right. So, which was
0: quite stunning and yeah, in many unusual ways fits with some of the elements of the case, the, the, the very precise, um, almost professional ways in which the body parts were, um, Separated. They weren't hacked off. They were sawed off skillfully. And one of the techniques of sawing off the feet was accomplished, sawing mostly the way through the bones and then snapping them off, which is also a skilled treatment. Mm-hmm. Like if you were a butcher, that might be how you would take off um, that part of the anatomy. So there were elements of the way in which it was discarded and the parts that were left as opposed to the parts that were not. Because it would not have been valuable because of Billy's looks would not have been valuable as a collection item to Dahmer at the time. So it wasn't conclusive, and and it's unlikely ever to be conclusive. But it was certainly evocative.
1: It was. Um, we through our own initial uh, inquiry into uh, this is a, uh, I'll synopsize this as well, and then I'm going to make Eric say what he always says what he really realized, and I think put very succinctly about what we do know to be true of Billy's killer. But let me say this first. Um, I opened up uh, a pretty respected book about the Jeffrey Dahmer case after we got Ron Wheeler's story, because I immediately wanted to prove, if there was something documented that immediately proved that Dahmer, there was no way Dahmer could have been in Southern California at the time of the murder, uh, I wanted to find it. I didn't find it in that book. Uh, we might find it in another book. There are a lot of books Maybe. on Jeffrey Dahmer. You yeah. know, people have opinions on the subject. A lot but of what information we do, there. What we do know for sure is that Dahmer's murders in Milwaukee went quiet during an extended time frame that covers Billy's murder. That during October of 1990, Dahmer was not active on an active murder spree in Milwaukee. That's not proof of anything. But that is something that we have discovered. But, I, Eric, I want you to say what you always say. What do we know to be true about Billy's killer based on the facts that we do know? It's kind of an attribute.
0: We know that Billy's killer was prepared to. <laughs> was, I, that Billy was picked. I believe, we believe that Billy was picked up. To be killed—that it was yes. not. Right. It was not a crime of opportunity. It was a crime of intent. Like, and they—why do we they believe Billy up? <laughs> I'm just cueing you. These are all things that you quiz? say to me, all I want you my to say con- them on the show. Yeah. Is this is all my conclusions. Well, because of the way in which the competent way in which it was, uh, his body was uh, disposed of. The fact mm-hmm. that that it was handled in the way that it was. This is, there is nothing haphazard or even seemingly rushed about the way in which, and there's nothing particularly concerned. Like if somebody wanted to be rid of Billy, they could have thrown him in the Pacific ocean. Like, you know what I mean? Like a dumpster in, in Hollywood is just a convenient place to leave the body. Mm -hmm. am I saying the the things
1: that well you're saying that this is a crime this is a uh, the murder is one thing the dismemberment requires a place to dismember a body yeah. And a way to deal with an enormous amount of blood—an enormous amount of blood. Yeah, and like this it's... was this was carried out in one night. This is not somebody who was missing for several days, and then his body parts turned up later, and he could have ostensibly been driven out to Victorville. That may have happened, but that would have taken a lot of forethought and planning to pull off in one night. You would have had to have a place in Victorville lined up, and I'm just throwing that out there because it's a it's a desert location north of the city, northeast. So and I think you you pointed that out to me right away. It was something that yeah. I could sense, but it wasn't necessarily something that yeah, I Yeah, there's no had lack fully. time. Like
0: this was somebody who was all set up to do this. Yeah. You know, if you ever watch that television show Dexter where he had the room all covered with plastic and all the mm-hmm. implements laid out and all of that so sort of, It was somebody like that. It was somebody who was prepared to deal with Billy in the way that he was dealt with, the, absolutely, it was it was it was very calculated. There doesn't seem to be anything um, haphazard about the way in which this unfolds. I could be that could be it could just totally have been by chance that this came together this way, but it seems very unlikely.
1: Yeah, um, around uh, there was an a, an episode of a true crime television show I was watching recently that documented a murder. That happened in Largo, Florida around this time. Well, actually considerably earlier in 1986. And I bring it up not because I think the perpetrator was responsible for this murder, but because it is a good example forensically of what he went home with the wrong guy looks like. And obviously, if Billy went home with this killer, he went home with the wrong guy. But I went home and this is a common fear a common thing that gay men in particular faced. You go home with a guy who seems interested. He's maybe unsure of his sexuality. He's maybe violent. He gets drunk. He snaps. He later claims the gay panic defense. These murders look, they have a specific look to them. And the the murder in Largo, Florida um, that I'm referring to Uh, stab wounds, a series of stab wounds at close range that appeared to have been uh, leveled on the victim right at the moment when maybe things were about to get intimate, and then a panicked response. Uh, tied the guy's wrist with phone cord because he wasn't entirely dead. You've got a killer who's drunk, who hasn't planned this, throws a blanket over him just to really hide the evidence of what he's done, and then runs the hell out of his apartment. There are a lot of murders like that. They Matthew Shepard,
0: not yeah. to you know to name a to name a pretty high profile murder. That's the you know that's right. That is but very I, much the circumstance left with somebody who he what should not have left with left that bar yeah. with somebody he shouldn't have left with.
1: And that's that's not about casting blame on the victim necessarily, but we're saying that you went home with someone because the signs were not there yet that they were unsure and, and anxiety and, and identity dissociation or whatever about what they were about to do with you sexually. You thought it was going to be a sexual encounter and they had another, they were fucked up on the topic.
0: And, uh, you know, I would say that's probably the case with a sizable number of women in heterosexual mm-hmm. circumstances as well. Yeah. the Looking yeah. for Mr. Goodbar moment. You met somebody who seemed like a great guy at the bar and then seemed like a serial killer when you got home, you know, and that's too late, but what can you yeah. do by then? Yeah. But yes, and I, they don't look like this. They don't look they all don't, neat, wrapped up, dropped in a bag, left at a convenient dumpster behind a recording studio on Hollywood Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard. They look like, you know, the sort of chaotic mess that um, Matthew Shepard or any of those people um, end up looking like. Yes. So this is what has happened
1: since our last episode. Um, We have been able to obtain some official sources which have allowed us to construct a timeline of Billy's last movements from between Thursday, October 25th, 1990, to the discovery of his remains in a dumpster on Monday, October 29th. Um, We are not using the real or full names of anyone who has not given us our uh, permission to do so. So if we use a name, it's a pseudonym. We will mostly be using nicknames to refer to the various players. Ron Wheeler has given us permission to use his name. And what we can say without getting too spoilery here is that with one minor exception, which was a detail of Ron Wheeler's story that he qualified when he gave it to us, what we have determined in terms of Billy's last movements can accommodate the timeline of what Ron Wheeler said regarding his own eyewitness account of Billy's last. Yeah. There is, there is really
0: no conflict there. There is an area of maybe uncertainty about one element of timing, but it's not crucial to the crime itself. Absolutely. All right. So let's dive in. Let's start with Thursday, October
1: 25th, 1990, because that is really where the timeline that we've been able to build begins. Um, Billy and David Ray, that is a porn director and producer with whom Billy had been romantically involved for an extended period of time and with whom he had started a production company that had gone out of business. Uh, They concluded work on a porn movie called In the Grip of Passion. Billy did makeup for the film and performed in a sex scene. Uh, He would later express a strong attraction to his co-star in this scene, But the detectives would eliminate that co-star as a suspect, and that co-star has since passed away. Um, It appears that this was an extensive workday that ended late. So it really was probably how Billy spent most of his day on Thursday, October 25th, 1990. Friday, October 26th, 1990, Billy performs in a scene for another porn film called Fantasy Images. He was booked by that production company to return the following week to do a solo scene. And if you don't know what a solo scene is, I don't know how explicit we should get here, but Google it.
0: Think of it's, what you can do by
1: yourself, and that's what in the According to the video technician interviewed from that shoot, nothing unusual happened occurring occurred during filming. And after filming was complete, the video technician dropped Billy off at his apartment at twelve thirty a.m. on what is now the morning of October twenty seventh, nineteen ninety. Saturday, October twenty seventh, nineteen ninety. Billy and David Ray do another day of shooting on the first on the film they were working on on Thursday, right? So Billy went off on Friday to work on another movie. Saturday, and he's once more.
0: Yeah, go worth ahead. Worth saying, David Ray is a nom de porn. It is also not somebody's yes. real name, which is why we are using it. Absolutely. They do another day of shooting
1: on In the Grip of Passion. They finish work at approximately 9.30 p.m. Then they go out to dinner at a restaurant called the Yukon Mining Company, uh, which is no longer around. <laughs>
0: That's right, at Facebook.com slash The
1: Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So we're now at Saturday, October 27th, 1990 at 9.30 p.m. Ah, uh, Billy and David Ray have finished up another day of shooting on a porn film called In the Grip of Passion, and they go out to dinner at a restaurant that used to be a local institution called the Yukon Mining Company. Eric, do you remember the Yukon Mining? Company? I
0: do remember the Yukon mining company. It was quite the local um, hangout, I guess, would be sort of the, it was uh, yeah, it had a it had a great it had quite the reputation. Let's go with that. It was open late, if not all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was breakfast 24 hours a day It mm. had a big outdoor dining area and it was on the side of, um, West Hollywood that I used to lovingly refer to as Horville. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, on the, e- on the Eastern side of West Hollywood was definitely more Hustler neighborhood. Back in olden times, mm-hmm. um, Hustlers didn't work online. There weren't any websites. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were they would work in that general area on the streets, around Plummer Park, around there. Um, that's where Yukon Mining Company was. It was in the front of the parking lot, I believe, out in front of what used to be the Trader Joe's over there. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been torn down and redeveloped into the ongoing mixed-use condo retail space thing that is sort of um urbanizing the neighborhood and i don't hate it it's it's pretty great but Mm -hmm. i do hate that we lost some uh local hangouts and and yukon mining company was a great place for a good hearty late night drunken breakfast and it was also a great place to see a lot of um working boys from Mm -hmm. men young men from the streets of the uh of that side of the horville side of uh Mm-hmm. Beautiful West Hollywood. And uh yeah, they would come in there for breaks and and uh occupy tables and hold court and it was it was quite it had quite the reputation and was quite popular, um, with yeah. everybody in the neighborhood, but also quite colorful. Let's go with that as the as the right. description in terms of those people who dined there. And so yeah, I can totally see how after a hard day at the porn shoot, the Yukon mining company Uh, might be the perfect place to go. So that's where they went. And then at
1: 12.30 a.m., David drove Billy back to his apartment after they spent some time with mutual friends. And we're now at the morning of October 28, 1990. And this is apparently the last time David Ray saw Billy alive. Sunday, October 28, 1990. We're now in the last day anyone saw Billy alive that we know about. At 8.30 a.m., Billy places a call to his sister in Las Vegas, and they have a brief discussion because Billy is planning to move to Las Vegas within the next few days. Uh, His mother is also moving to Vegas, and so he's going to live there with his mother and his sister. The The subject of the conversation is whether or not he should take a bus or an airplane. Phone records confirm that this conversation took place. Phone records also confirm that he later made two long-distance phone calls to Greyhound bus services. At 11 a.m., Billy hangs out with his three roommates. Now, Billy was sort of crashing in this apartment. His three roommates were in a thruple. They were in a three-way relationship. Billy had previous romantic history with who we're going to call roommate One. He'd only been living in this apartment for about two months because the move to Las Vegas to live with his sister and mother was sort of imminent and had been in the works for a while um,
0: so on this couch day surfing.
1: he was it sounds like he was couch surfing but he'd been on this couch for about two whole months so uh, Billy tells his roommates that he's going to take a shower then walk to a video rental place called video Gaga to rent a movie now, this apartment is technically located in Beverly Hills, but if you're not familiar with the map of Los Angeles, Beverly Hills and West Hollywood are neighbors. They are direct next door neighbors. And so one block over is Beverly Hills in one direction and the other block over is West Hollywood. In fact, there was West a Hollywood.
0: debate when, they were, when West Hollywood was becoming a city as to whether or not we would be West Hollywood or East Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And West Hollywood in,
1: won. West Hollywood won. And I don't know about you, but I'm relieved. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, he parts ways with the roommates. This is, again, at about 11 a.m. in the morning, Sunday, October 28th, 1990. The roommates later tell the police they spent the day
0: at a church picnic. Which I have never once believed. Um, that sounds like the sort of, that sounds like the... the the verbal equivalent of a fuck off. If you want to know where I was, um, they have, they were somewhere, they were occupied. They could alibi out, but they weren't going to tell it to the police. So they said they were at a church picnic, like a church picnic. Really? Really? I mean, I guess anything's possible, but I doubt it. I've lived here for 115 years and no one has ever, said that there was a church picnic let alone that they've been to one anywhere that I could hear or be aware of
1: uh, this is definitely something we want some more clarity on and we hope to get more clarity because I also think it could be a lost in translation thing you know the way it's filtered down to what the sources we were working with like maybe they didn't say it was like a game of telephone <laughs> they didn't say church picnic but The point is, they made plans to reconnect with Billy at 4.15 that evening, and they were all going to go out together. Billy is never seen at Video Gaga by the staff there on this day. At any point in time, he was not in their system as having rented a video. So the thing that he told—well, I don't think he was necessarily deceiving the roommates— that event never took place, whether he was planning to do it he later. He never made it to Video Gaga, whatever He never made case. it to Video Gaga. Between 2.30 p.m. and 3 p.m., Billy enters Rage. This is the nightclub where he was last seen alive. It's and located- this is
0: consistent with the time frame that Ron Wheeler... Mm-hmm. uh discussed in his initial contact with us that that it was this sort of late afternoon it wasn't quite it wasn't a, a wild night at at the raid so this this official time frame also matches with Ron Wheeler's story right independently Ron Wheeler's story said it was daylight out
1: the crowd in the bar was slow the strange man that he had a brief interaction with who looked like Dahmer said asked specifically When was it going to get busier? And Ron said later that night. Ron also said by the time he saw Billy leave the bar, it was still daylight out. Daylight, daylight, happy hour, happy hour, right? So the time frame fits. Um, uh, Billy is there because he wants to talk to a man we're going to call the bartender because Billy and the bartender were in the first stages of a sexual relationship. They'd actually lived together very briefly. Um, Billy says to the bartender, I'd like to talk. Because um, I'm not in a very good mood. And the bartender's response is basically, I'm busy hanging decorations right now, which we're assuming are Halloween decorations because yeah, Halloween, Halloween is a few is days away. Yeah, Halloween is a couple
0: away. Of days away and it's the weekend. So yeah, I could totally see how it was tea dance Halloween decorations. And he basically says to Billy, I don't really have time for you right now. Um,
1: the bartender will later tell people that Billy sat at the bar alone and had several drinks. He says he didn't talk with anyone or make any phone calls. And he left the bar between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. telling the bartender that he would talk to him soon. So let's just let's just talk about this for a second. He enters the bar between 2.30 and 3 p.m. The bartender is busy and doesn't have time for him. But he just sits there until five p.m. According to this bartender, doing absolutely nothing, not talking to anybody else. He doesn't. This, there are no cell phones. This is not a day where you can
0: sit and sort of scroll through Twitter for three hours to yeah. kill
1: time while you have your drink. There, what there is probably Billy doing?
0: Been, there would have been video screens. He could have been watching television. But was that or, a thing? Or, yeah. or um, uh, music videos like that would have been the most that he would have been able to uh to do with that point but i honestly i if the if the bartender was busy decorating the bar for halloween then mm-hmm. i don't know how close of tabs he would have been able Absolutely. to keep on billy my thought is that's his general awareness of what billy was doing but he doesn't actually have a very accurate picture of him as he told billy he didn't have time for billy and while it might have been slow um at the rage it was Los Angeles slow. It wasn't, uh, you know, the, it wasn't Dodge City slow. Right. Yeah. There weren't and, tumbleweeds but, blowing through
1: the bar. This is the window of time. In which so let's let's check in with Ron Wheeler's story here. Ron Wheeler's story is I was introduced to Billy for the first time at Happy Hour at Rage the night before he was killed. So we've established a timeline for the previous nights, and Billy's only got a few more hours to live. I hate to put it that bluntly, where it's not it doesn't actually add up that Billy could have gone to Rage in the early evening when it was still daylight out. He was working on a porn film on that day, on that day, he was occupied, all these other times. This is the early evening when Billy is at Rage Night club before his death this is the early evening where ron most likely was introduced to billy right before his death this is the window of time in which ron's story about going up to the bar seeing this hot guy from out of town trying to hit on him being blown off and then seeing the guy talk to billy connect with billy share a drink and then quickly head out of the bar this fits this Ron's story fits within this timeline. This is a window of time in which Billy's movements and actions are not very well accounted for. The definitive account of what Billy was up to is coming from a distracted bartender who said by his own admission, he didn't really want to talk to Billy and didn't have the time. Well, so I think the that's,
0: official account is coming from, because I don't know that his account is any more definitive than Ron's. Ron's yeah, account official. is just not official. Right. Yeah.
1: right. Exactly. Um, okay. So, we do know that detectives spoke to another bartender who was working at rage during that same time frame, and that bartender says he doesn't remember Billy coming in at all, but he remembers his coworker hanging the decorations right so okay, we don't The point is we don't have a lot of other people paying a lot of close attention to what Billy was right. up to and during it wasn't of like time. I
0: say, it was Los Angeles dad it wasn't um. It wasn't the middle of nowhere, dad. This was, you know, there was, it was still Sunday afternoon at the Rage, which is tea dance time. So there would have been plenty of people around coming and going, having a mimosa or a Bloody Mary or something and wrapping up the weekend or Mm -hmm. warming up to a Sunday night at the bar. So here is an unanswered question
1: based on, posed, if you will, by the sources that we've been able to obtain. Somewhere within this time frame, we think, Billy placed a phone call to a friend who are going to call Phone Friend. They discussed Billy's upcoming move to Las Vegas. Phone Friend said Billy sounded happy and that they made plans to meet each other the following night. Phone Friend did not hear any background noise on the phone as he spoke to Billy. Um, which suggests that it was not a payphone call, which means maybe it wasn't made from the street or from the bar at Rage, which apparently had payphones. We're way Everywhere before cell phones here, phones. so this is yeah. that's off the table. Nobody had a cell phone. It's 1990. The friend's
0: opinion was that Billy well, was calling nobody, him from they home.
1: Were the size of
0: <laughs> small car. There was the,
1: um, there was suitcase size. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't have any definitive time nailed down for this phone call. And what we know is that two months into the investigation, uh, records for the nearby payphones had not been obtained. So they couldn't rule out whether or not Billy had made a call from inside Rage during this time period or from the street nearby. And again, the friend himself, the phone call happened on this day and he thought it was within this window of time, but he's not entirely sure. And that The next event on our timeline is at 1043 a.m. the following morning when a transient is rooting through a dumpster at 7000 Santa Monica Boulevard. The alley where the dumpster is located is south of the boulevard and west of Orange Drive behind a business that was known as Studio 56 Recording Studios. The alley runs to the west and is bordered by Orange Drive and Sycamore Avenue. It's about a 15-foot wide alley, so I'm no math genius, but I think that's wide enough to fit a vehicle down. Oh, the dump- yeah, of course. Yeah.
0: Plenty wide enough.
1: There were two trash dumpsters with the numbers 1 and 2 painted on the side, respectively. Inside the dumpster labeled 2, the transient spots the left side of Billy's face, through the tor- torn open side of a trash bag containing his severed head. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv
0: and wherever ebooks are sold.
1: It's Monday, October 29th, 1990. This is the event in which Billy's dismembered remains are discovered in the dumpster. We're in the alley behind 7000 Santa Monica Boulevard. A transient opens the door to one of two dumpsters in this area, and he sees the left side of Billy's face through the torn open side of a trash bag containing his severed head. As we covered in episode 48, Billy's severed feet would later be found in a separate trash bag inside of the same dumpster. Also in that dumpster, a red Paisley shirt, later identified as Billy's, and this is a detail I'm tripping on, Eric, and I could use your, your brilliance here. It's in the middle of the dumpster on top of the debris. So we've got, presumably, if we've got one person throwing these bags with body parts into the dumpster, I guess the question is this, do you think the shirt came out of the um trash bag containing Billy's head when it was
0: torn open? I think that seems likely. I you know, like obviously there's more information you'd be able to tell from the shirt. It would be covered with um blood and whatever if it was in the if it was in the bag with um with the head. The bag was torn, so that seems very likely to me that that would be um how it came to be there. It could have been thrown in separately, but that seems not consistent with the rest of the facts. Like, mm-hmm. why would you b- put other things in trash bags and then bring loose trash with it? I, it, it this, the, the shirt bothers me
1: probably more than anything else. Right. Like, but why only that piece of clothing? You know, I guess this is the okay, so the, the detective Burcham who has spoken to us and we talked about his account on in episode 48 who discuss, actually was one of the first law enforcement people to see this when the transient right. went to get help. Um he says people cut up bodies, they the, the body parts were probably in different dumpsters. Okay, there's another dumpster on that alley. There are no body parts in it that we've been made aware of. No. Okay. And I'm pretty sure they weren't. Um, it doesn't appear that any... I I assume the dumpster was searched. I think they would have been insane not to. No clothes in that dumpster as well. So are we to believe that other body parts were put in other trash bags, brought to other distant dumpsters, and in each one was a piece of Billy's clothes that he'd been wearing the night that um, he was killed?
0: Well, like I said, I don't know what the the condition of the shirt was or the forensics evidence would be, but the head could have been wrapped in the shirt. The other thing that occurs to me as a possibility is that... The transient may have actually gone for the shirt initially and mm. then discovered the head in the process, thrown the shirt back in the bin right. and then alerted the authorities without mentioning that they had gone for the shirt because that might have been something that they were interested in. Um, right. I, I don't know that, but you know, like there's there's a lot of possibilities for it. It doesn't seem to me to be indicative of a lot. Mm hmm. The um, shirt, the presence of the shirt. You mean, yeah, Yeah, the feet may have been wrapped in a tablecloth. I don't know that. I just don't think I have enough information at mm-hmm. this point for that to seem like a significant event to me. It could be, you know, like, OK, I don't know. But it seems like the thing that the, my primary thoughts about it are, oh, that's too bad because then it is totally contaminated and it's never, ever going to be any good for DNA.
1: Yeah, just the dumpster would contaminate it, right? Yeah, not not, not only the transient possibly touching yeah. it. Yeah. Um As you mentioned earlier, the examination of the bones in the head and the feet indicate a saw-type instrument was used. This is the detail that will haunt me forever. The killer sawed through the ankle bones until they were thin enough to snap the feet off the rest of the way with his bare hands. That's not I went home with the wrong guy and he lost his shit. That's I went home with a murderer. I just don't think so. That's somebody who knew what they were doing,
0: or at least a butcher. I was
1: taken by a murderer. I shouldn't say I went home as if he made the wrong judgment call because we have no evidence of that at all. This is a butcher. We're talking about a butcher. Uh, And we mean that in the larger sense, not that the guy... The literal
0: sense of like, yeah, draining the blood out, exsanguinating and um, cutting up a body is butchery.
1: At this point, upon the discovery of the remains... There's been no identification of Billy made yet, and there won't be for several days. Police show a photograph of the remains to various sex workers who worked on the street in the area. Several of them say Billy worked the streets, but Billy's friends who worked in the porn industry and weren't shy on these topics would later say this was just entirely untrue and it misdirected the investigation in its early stages. Billy was a sex worker, but he did his sex work on camera. You know, he didn't, he was not somebody who there appears to be no evidence that he was a sex worker who worked on the street. So this is where we get to a detail of Ron Wheeler's story that he qualified, I think, when he presented it to us. And so I don't really think it's that big a deal, but it's about rectifying the timelines here. Ron speculated that his friend Mark, who had been present with him at Rage when he was introduced to Billy, um, showed up at his house on Halloween as they were preparing to go out and that they discussed the murder that night that's not actually possible because Billy's um roommates filed a missing person's report for Billy on November 1st and were later brought to the police station I believe to identify either the shirt or the photo uh, a photograph of his remains. I don't believe they identified the actual physical remains I think that was God, done I later hope they didn't
0: have to do that that just seems.
1: Yeah, Um, they uh, that happened on November 1st. So it's probably Ron and his friends went out the night of November 1st or November 2nd to party. And that is when Ron uh, ran into, by his assertion, the bartenders who had been working that night. And they said, yeah, we saw we saw Billy leave with a stranger, uh, including the bartender who he says was serving Billy. And this out-of-towner who looked a lot like Jeffrey Dahmer and that the bartender said he was planning to go to the police and share what he saw. It's unclear if this is the same bartender we discussed earlier who claimed to be the last one who saw Billy alive. So some mystery around that bartender and what he saw or didn't saw or if he's the same person um, or how many bartenders were even working that night. Right. Um and so as we already said the following day November 1st the roommates basically decide Billy has been gone to Billy was a young man who who partied. And so it was not unusual for him. He did not I don't think he always checked in at 9 p.m. with his roommates. So they were thinking maybe yeah. he's out, he's enjoying himself. But by November 1st, and possibly, Halloween is a pretty big right.
0: festival in West Hollywood, they like even for Ron like it might have been three days later and still be being celebrated Halloween, you know, like yeah, it's it is a big event here, yeah, and so, like November first, Halloween's
1: over, I, I'm imagining they're like, okay, Billy, Billy's missing, you know, and I, I imagine they also probably yeah. called around, and nobody else he would had... surely
0: have they he would surely have checked in by now,
1: yeah, um, and that concludes the timeline that we have built in this moment, based off the official sources that we have. And so, as we said earlier, it does fit with the vast majority of what Ron Reeler has said, you know, evening. is And what we've been able
0: to glean from other people that we've talked to so far. It is very much in keeping, but it does flesh out a lot of the details um, that we talked about um, in episode 48 and previously, but it isn't our big announcement. The big announcement is that as a result of episode
1: 48, we have been contacted by the LAPD homicide detective who is currently in charge
0: of this open case. Which, as you know, was our goal in doing this to begin with, was to bring this case back to the attention of the authorities in the hopes of having them revisit the investigation and possibly advance this long process. forgotten, not really forgotten, but long set aside case of great tragedy that, that yeah. you know, his, his family is still around and they would still like answers if there are any to be had.
1: Yeah, I think I said to you at one point that our I wanted to talk about it just to create the next generation of people who are maybe as obsessed with it as I was, because I ain't no spring chicken either. Like we're all getting older and I was worried that when I when we found, which we discussed on the last on episode forty eight, that his father, who had really kept it going for a long time, yeah. had died, I thought, Oh God, is Billy running out of advocates? And so the fact that we were able to secure the attention of the
0: LAPD with our episode is is a very important thing Blown for us. Blown away. Oh, my and, God. I could not have been more excited when Christopher called to say that they had contacted.
1: Yeah. And um, respectfully and openly, and uh, he, the detective, has volunteered himself for what may end up being our first interview here on Christopher and Eric. So We've we'll done plenty of interviews posting. on our other podcasts. But yeah, so we're going to work on that. We're going to try to make that happen. And we are going to try to keep this conversation and this story
0: alive. And that's, you know... And to keep Billy's memory alive and to keep attention being paid to this dreadful. And I disrespectful is the word that comes to mind to me. It just... That he was treated in such a way. I mean, to be killed is bad enough. Like trash. To be cut up and thrown away like trash. Just that just can't stand. I just I, that. I, just- I can't. I can't.
1: And and in that moment in history, which we you talked about some on our last episode, that this is the this is the darkest days of the AIDS crisis. This is um, a time when gay marriage is a joke. Nobody would even take the idea seriously. I mean, if you're if you're younger and you're listening and you're you're a member of the LGBT community. I hope you never live through a time like this. I mean, it wasn't the 1950s and it was, it was in some ways, I think it was more bittersweet isn't the right world, but more conflicted and ironic because this community had started to develop in the seventies and then just been broadsided by this epidemic that had just taken out a whole generation of, of. That was um,
0: ignored largely yeah. by the, uh, by the authorities, by the government um, as it killed Hundreds of thousands of people or over 100,000 people. I'm not sure how many had died by that point, but it was substantial. And it was a time of great disregard for gay people as um, a minority group or as being significant at all. People were Mm -hmm. felt free government, people from government, even people who you would think would be on our side felt free to just say pretty much whatever they wanted to about gay people, comparing it to shoplifting and alcoholism and, um, dismissing it as, um, you know, a, a choice, a lifestyle choice. Mm -hmm. Um, like you might choose to live in a Mediterranean house or something. I just, just, just really contemptible. Like if you were a gay person and you actually biologically had your own child, this was a time when you could be taken a Court and have your actual biological child taken away from you on the Mm -hmm. grounds that you were a gay person. Like Mm -hmm. that's what it was like to be gay in 1990. So, for one of us to be killed, cut up, and thrown in a dumpster, you know, was very indicative of how we were being treated kind of as a community in general at the time. And I just really it, it, I guess that's part of the reason that it sticks with me. I, I think I would care even if it wasn't, even if it was recent and at the height mm-hmm. of you know, civil rights development. but God, in those days, no, this is just I, if it had if happened we do recently, anything to make it better.
1: I mean, I think if it had happened recently, people excuse me, people would be doing what we're doing. Social media ensures now that victims who might have fallen through the cracks before don't. I mean, it's not a perfect system, and it's not always no, flawless. and it and, can
0: help, but yeah. I, this isn't a guarantee. But yeah, at least there is more opportunity, more voice. And the, the time that Billy passed away, we had um, dial telephones and mm-hmm. answering machines that had tapes in them. That was right. how you got information around that and the newspaper and a half-hour news report in the evening on three networks. Four, mm-hmm. if you counted Fox, but nobody really did. Yeah, right.
1: Not for our community, anyway. Not a bit of murder in our community. Although, ironically, one of the only local television stations to do a piece about the murder far more recently was the local Fox affiliate, yeah. which I think we talked about recently. Detective Wendy Barrett, who was the homicide, who was supervisor of Hollywood Station, or maybe Hollywood Homicide, I should clear that up, um, did a media push in 2005, largely at the behest of the family, but also a private detective who worked the case for many years. Uh, and she got the local fox affiliate to do a segment as part of their series i think it was called LA's most wanted these spotlighting unsolved crimes that had just gone on for it's the length of time they've gone without a single substantial lead that's what i can't it's that and honestly we've we've had some conversations with people connected to Billy, who have had interactions with the detectives. And they said, over the long arc of this, the detectives have been really engaged. It wasn't like people, we don't really know. Like there are some, There's there appear to be some problems in the early, early stages of the investigation. But since then, people who have been interviewed have been like, they had binders and notebooks and they were really they were committed. So it's not like and yeah, Wendy Barrett's like who contacted us. This
0: is not yeah. somebody out of the this is actually his job, you know, and this is a case he contact he was he'd listened to the podcast and yeah was it wanted to know more and wanted to speak with Ron. We're trying to connect the two of them We're it's up to them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, just as with everything, we're not actually investigators. We're just doing a podcast and are interested in trying to help. But right. Yeah. I mean, that's it has been. Yeah, I, I am pleased with the continuing response. And there seems to be a pretty good record of it having been investigated and documented right along. That's how we got a lot of official information that we've gotten from, yeah. you know, the sources that we've been able to find is because of that documentation. Right. And uh, so we're making good on our promise
1: to keep talking about it. I mean, we did that episode last time and said, we're going to keep talking about this. And we did. And these are the results. We've been talking to you, our party people, but we've also been talking to
0: other people, clearly. And... um So there will be more to come and we will continue to keep you posted. But wow, you know, wow. Way to go, Christopher. i honest to God. This started with a discussion of, you know, what cases we're obsessing about. And it has grown into a place where we've actually reengaged the authorities who haven't ever thrown this away. But, Mm -mm. you know. Actively piqued their interest in looking back into these events and talking to people we've been able to contact through, you know, your efforts. So, oh, well, well done. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I, it could not be done without your blazing insight and um, assessment of the sources and information. And
0: Which I means think I'm bossy all- and pushy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that too. But
0: that's the nice way to say that.
1: But you, you've got a you've got a bullshit detector that's pretty um pretty good, you know. And when something comes in that doesn't sound right or doesn't fit, you you don't hesitate to say it, you know. And I think that that's a skill. And you're connected to this time period. You were you were a young gay man striking out on your it's own. This is right around the yourself. time that
0: I moved here. I was here within. Six months, eight months of this particular crime. So, yeah, and it was something that was still being talked about. Uh, I believe there were
1: a thousand homicides a month in Los Angeles during this period in history. My God, So that that shows you what pile Billy fell in with. A thousand homicides a month. The city was just a few years away from exploding into civil unrest over the Rodney King verdict. The murder of Latasha Harlins, um, forgive me if I got her name wrong, which would ultimately be a contributing factor to that. She was shot in the back by the owner of a drugstore for shoplifting and killed. That happened around this period and would end up being fuel for that fire later. So the city was in it was a difficult time in Los Angeles and it was it was a it was a tinder in general. But the I say all it that it was because quite the, a
0: time to have moved here. I was uh, yeah. I was in a year or so I had lived through earthquakes and riots and in civil insurrections. And I I thought, where did I move? My God, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that this has been the right choice. Right. It was disaster proof though. Like Garp says in the movie, it was, what are the chances of that happening again? Right. We've already had the civil insurrection. How could that possibly happen again? Uh-huh. He buys a house to, because an airplane yeah. crashes into it while he's looking at it. And he says, "Let's. I want this house. What are the chances of that ever happening again? Yeah.
1: Do you still feel that way about L.A.? Has it
0: been disaster-proofed for you? Well, I just think that we're always um, on the lookout for new disaster. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, okay.
0: <laughs> okay. No, the, the L.A. that I live in today is... is Substantially different from the LA that I moved here. Um, When I moved here, it it, I feel safer. I feel Mm. uh, things are better developed, better. We're in a much better place than we were in when I first got here. We were in a, Mm a. It was financially, it was economically not doing great when I first arrived, and it was reflected in the in the city itself. But mm-hmm. the relations of the city, there's still room to grow and things to improve, but we're doing a way better than we were in 1990.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's good. We'll end on an, an upbeat note for an otherwise sad and tragic episode. Uh, we are going to continue to work on getting an interview with the LAPD detective who contacted us about Billy's case so that we can bring you more on that. And until then and forever after, I am Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw-Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.